It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before we start the show, I'd like to give a huge thank you to our latest Patreon supporter, Sam Vandervinger. If you'd also like to become a Patreon supporter, you can check out the link to the page in the show notes, where you can do so for as little as $3 a month. Now, on with the episode. For almost 17 years, Frank and Tessie Posar had packed up their bags each October and headed for the lush landscapes and golden sands of Hawaii. But in 1984, they never made it, and no one has heard from them since. This is The Case Remains Podcast, episode 19, The Disappearance of Frank and Tessie Posar. With its broken sign and ramshackle appearance, the rust-red building on the corner of Spokane Street seems like your run-of-the-mill roadside motel. But for Frank and Tessie Posar, it was once the centre of their world. They not only owned the Spokane Street motel, they lived there too. Frank, age 62, and Tessie, 58, have been married for decades. The Spokane Street accommodation, just one of the local businesses they'd acquired over the years, which included a laundry and another low-rent motel. The pair were far from your average entrepreneurs, though. Frank had finished his sophomore year in high school, while Tessie had only a sixth-grade education. But they were responsible and hard-working, and poured their lives into their businesses, And as a result, they'd amassed an estate of half a million dollars. Frank and Tessie led a frugal lifestyle, and rather than spending, had invested much of their earnings into property in Hawaii. Every year, as autumn drew in, they would close the Spokane Street Motel, kennel their dogs, put their camper in storage, and catch a plane to Hawaiian Paradise Park, where they would stay until March or April. Over almost two decades, they'd gradually accumulated 24 acres of land on the island, where they hoped to eventually retire. They already had a small house and a mobile home there, and were in the middle of building another house that looked out onto the ocean. Once they'd retired and moved over to Hawaii, they planned to gradually sell off the plots they'd bought, living out the rest of their years with no financial worries, against a soundtrack of ocean waves lapping against the shore. In October of 1984, just as they always did, Frank and Tessie set off on their journey over to Hawaii. Friends and family back in Spokane, including their two grown-up children, Frank Jr. and Linda, never expected to hear much from the Posars during their winters on the island. They didn't have a phone there, and would instead keep in touch with their children with the occasional postcard home. But when Thanksgiving, and then Christmas, came and went with no communication... Linda started to worry. Over in Hawaii, the Posars' friends were also concerned. Frank and Tessie stuck to their routine like clockwork, and so when they didn't turn up by November, their friends immediately thought that something was wrong. In late December, Frank Jr. had made a trip to Hawaii to see if he could find his parents. 
Unfortunately, until that point, their friends in Hawaii had assumed that something had come up back in Washington, and so they hadn't thought to raise the alarm when the posars hadn't turned up. Finally, in early January, two months after Frank and Tessie were scheduled to leave Washington, their friends reported them missing to police. And so, in both Washington and Hawaii, they began to investigate the last known movements of Frank and Tessie Posar. Understandably, by that time, the Posar's friends and family had trouble remembering exactly the last time they had seen them. Luckily, though, Frank and Tessie were creatures of habit, leaving police some clues as to where to start their investigation. The Posars always boarded their dogs at the family-run Blue Wing Kennel and had done so since 1977. The dogs, an Akita named Kaita and a Sheltie Cross named Yorkie, were very dear to the Posars, but they were unable to take them over to Hawaii because of the six-month quarantine the island had in place. They made a reservation to come and drop the dogs off at the kennel on October 29th, a Monday, like always. When police got in touch with the owner of the kennel, they discovered that Frank and Tessie'd never turned up. Bud Handwork, the owner of the kennel, remembered asking his son Reggie late on the 29th if he'd heard from them, because it seemed so out of character for them just to not turn up without saying anything. Reggie later said that he thought he remembered speaking to either Frank or Tessie one day in mid-November. Whoever he spoke to mentioned the no-show and said that they were still trying to get everything together for their trip. They made a new reservation to bring the dogs on November 19th. But Keita and Yorkie were never dropped off and neither of the dogs has ever been found. Frank and Tessie would always store their camper at a place called Mini Warehouse, usually a few days before they left for Hawaii. Then when it was time to go, they would get a cab to the airport. The Posars had dropped off their camper on October 29th, which turned out to be their last recorded sighting. But sometime in the next week or so, someone who couldn't be identified came and collected the camper from storage. On November the 10th, the camper was parked at Spokane National Airport. After it had sat there for 30 days, a routine licence plate check was run by airport officials. A letter was sent to the Posars Motel on December 12th, asking them to remove the vehicle from the airport car park, but they never received a response. A check of the Posars Hawaii flight tickets later revealed that they'd never been used, nor had they been cashed in. The police were stumped, and some people around town started to wonder if Frank and Tessie had disappeared of their own accord. But talking to the Honolulu Star Bulletin in June of 1985, Detective Jim Lundgren said, I can't find any reason that it would be advantageous for them to disappear, but then again, there's nothing that's really an indication of foul play. And he had a point. The Posars had channeled almost all of their money and energy into their retirement plan in Hawaii, scrimping and saving so that they could one day make their dream a reality. Why, after all that hard work, would they have orchestrated their own disappearance, leaving all their wealth and property behind? With no leads in Hawaii, police began to look into the Posar's home life back in Washington, wondering if perhaps the key to their disappearance lay in the Spokane Street Motel. The motel wasn't exactly located in the nicest part of town. 
Even at the time, it was considered an old neighbourhood, with most residential homes crowded out by small businesses and a dilapidated apartment building just a block away. Speaking to the Spokesman Review in 1985, Marlon Bates, whose office was close to the motel, said of the area, I'd say if you mind your own business, it's a safe enough area. But if you go looking for trouble, you can find it. It was common knowledge that prostitutes made up a significant chunk of the Posar's clientele, who took advantage of the low-rent rooms to go about their business. Though neighbours and police alike knew what was going on, they didn't seem to regard it as a big problem. It did, of course, mean that sometimes things at the Spokane Street Motel got a little bit wilder than Frank and Tessie would have liked. Neighbours revealed that, on one occasion, the couple was forced to get involved when a frantic woman burst into their apartment one night. She was being chased by her pimp, she said, who was threatening to kill her. While one of the Posar's dogs ran off the man, the woman hid in the bathroom and Frank called the police before chasing after the pimp himself. But that incident aside, Frank and Tessie had little to do with the goings-on at the motel. They got on with the clientele and were cooperative whenever the police needed to get involved. Their daughter, Linda, agreed that the clientele of the motel were unlikely to have anything to do with their parents' disappearance. Mama had a good rapport with those people, she said. She was pretty bossy with them. I ran the motel for a few years and Mama dealt with them just the same way I did. Sometimes you'd have trouble collecting the rent, but you don't make enemies over it. And so the police reached another dead end. When they got talking to the Posar's family, however, some things just didn't add up. In the winter of 1984, Frank Jr. told Linda that he'd received a letter from their parents telling him that they were thinking about going on a cruise and that Tessie had sent him a key to the motel and asked him to do some remodelling while they were away. But when Linda asked to see the letter, Frank Jr. said that he'd destroyed it. Linda was surprised by his claims. Not only did Frank Jr. and their parents have something of a strange relationship, in fact, they were barely talking at the time, but Frank and Tessie never asked anyone to come and stay in the motel while they were away. Friends of theirs were well aware of this too. Business was bad in the winter, and they didn't trust anyone else to run it. Nevertheless, Frank Jr. moved in and opened up for business but the remodelling that he'd supposedly been asked to complete wasn't adding up. He built a staircase from his parents' living space to an apartment upstairs, meaning it could no longer be rented out. According to Linda, however, the upstairs apartment was one of the most profitable rooms in the entire motel. Linda also wasn't convinced that her brother and parents had suddenly made amends. She had seen Frank and Tessie on the 26th of October, just days before they were due to leave, and they mentioned nothing to her about making up with Frank Jr. Linda had been trying to patch things up between them for months, so if they had, she was certain that they would have said something. As it happened, relations had been rocky between Frank Jr. and his parents for quite some time. Despite being 33 years old, Frank Jr. got by largely with the help of Frank and Tessie. They had purchased four rental properties which they handed over to him to manage once he graduated high school but Frank Jr.'s poor money management resulted in frequent arguments between him and his parents, 
with one even allegedly ending in him assaulting Tessie. In 1984, the same year Frank and Tessie disappeared, Frank Jr. had asked his parents for money so he could start up a computer magazine. They refused, so he sold the rental properties for less than they were worth in order to fund his new venture. But the computer magazine never took off, and from around July of that year, Frank Jr. stopped talking to his mother and father. A friend of the Posars, Helen Zimmerman, had lunch with Tessie on the day of the 29th, the day that the couple dropped off their camper and had planned to take their dogs to the kennel. Helen said that Tessie had talked about their feud with Frank Jr. and how he had thrown away the opportunities they'd essentially handed to him on a plate. She said that she and Frank would no longer be giving him any financial support. When Washington police began to investigate the disappearance in January of 1985, Frank Jr. had told them about the letter he had supposedly received from his parents. According to him, as well as the invitation to come and stay in the motel, the letter said that they'd arrived safe and sound in Hawaii. When the police began to take a look around the motel, however, they made some unusual and startling discoveries. Frank Jr. had a number of items that his parents almost always had on their person. He had a set of keys belonging to both Frank and Tessie, who normally kept her set pinned to the strap of her bra, as well as Tessie's reading glasses. The suitcases that they always took to Hawaii were found in the basement of the motel, their clothing abandoned in a pile. The evidence was damning, for sure, but without any bodies, police didn't have enough to charge Frank Jr. with murder. However, They also found that while Frank Jr. was living at the motel, he'd been making some strange and illegal financial transactions. He had used his parents' credit card to make a number of purchases, including a TV and video set recorder. He'd also used his parents' checkbook to write out a $550 payment to Washington Water Power Company and cashed in a savings bond in his parents' name. Based on their findings... Frank Jr. was asked to take a polygraph test by police, and he said he would do so only if Linda and her boyfriend took one too. They agreed and took the test, but then Frank Jr. refused. He said he didn't trust the police, saying that they would skew the test to prove their theory that he had something to do with his parents' disappearance. Nevertheless, the discovery of the forged check and the use of Frank and Tessie's credit card were enough to bring charges against Frank Jr., He was charged with theft and forgery and went to trial in December of 1985. At trial, his lawyer argued that the electronics bought with the credit card were used to improve the motel. The bonds, he said, were cashed to fund a trip to Hawaii to look for his parents and cover expenses at Spokane Street, which wasn't doing so well under Frank Jr.'s management. But far from being a bumbling businessman, The prosecution argued that the lies Frank Jr. had told showed he had every intent of stealing his parents' money. Though he said that the VCR and TV were bought for the motel, when police arrived to arrest Frank Jr., they were both hooked up to his personal computer. And in order to cash his parents' bonds, he'd had to open a bank account in his father's name using his social security number and using his credit card as identification. The bonds were then cashed in before Frank Jr. claimed to have learnt that his parents had even gone missing.
After a week at trial, Frank Jr. was found guilty on all six counts and sentenced to 20 months in prison. Naturally, a lot of the evidence that had been presented in court focused on the mysterious disappearance of Frank and Tessie. Frank Jr. didn't take the stand during his trial, but said afterwards that much of what had been said about his parents wasn't true. He said that he'd never told the police officer that Frank and Tessie wrote they'd arrived safely in Hawaii, and that his parents hadn't been arguing with him at all. He also said that Frank and Tessie hadn't been getting along before their trip, and that his mother had been sleeping in the camper behind the motel. When he was asked for his theory on the camper mysteriously turning up at the airport, he said that whoever did it must have been familiar with his parents and their routine, adding, and someone who knew they were carrying around a couple of thousand dollars with them too. After he was sentenced, police officially announced that Frank Jr. was a prime suspect in his parents' disappearance. In 1986, a month after he was sent to prison, Frank Jr. decided that it was time to take a polygraph test in order to prove his innocence, despite having refused one from police the summer before. Half of Spokane probably thinks by now that I killed them, he said. But I don't know where they are, and I'll prove by lie detector tests that I have no information. However, he said that he would only take one carried out by an independent company, not the police, and would only do so once he had been released from prison. He spoke to an independent polygraph tester, but refused to do the test with him, saying that it was obvious from the things he was saying that he was working for Detective Lundgren. His attorney introduced him to another independent polygraph tester, Robert Mandick. Mandick spent 20 years as a special agent in military intelligence before retiring in 1975, setting up his private polygraph business that same year. He worked with the Spokane County Public Defender's Office, state agencies and private businesses, as well as for other police forces that didn't have the capacity to perform their own tests in-house. Though there was, and indeed still is, much debate about the reliability of polygraph tests, if you were going to have one, then Mandic was the man for the job. Frank Jr. agreed to the test, but then said that he couldn't afford to take it, and so local newspapers, the Spokesman Review and Spokane Chronicle, offered to pay for it. However, there were three conditions Frank Jr. would have to abide by. First, he would have to sign an agreement stating that he'd released the results of the test to the newspapers. Second, while he was allowed to have some input into the questions asked, Robert Mandick would have ultimate control over the questions and how the test was conducted. And finally, Frank Jr. would have to pay the attorney fees to arrange his transfer from prison to Mandick's office for the test. Frank Jr. agreed to the terms, and on the 10th of February 1986, the test was finally underway. Frank Jr. had been made aware of and agreed to the first three questions Mandick asked him. After those were out of the way, Mandick hit him with a long list of additional questions that Frank Jr. hadn't been made aware of. The first part of the test involved a conversation between the two without the polygraph machine on, an exercise designed to put the subject at ease. When Mandick asked Frank Jr. if he had any idea what had happened to his parents, he said that he didn't know, but thought that possibly they had died as a result of a murder-suicide. Either that, he said, 
or they had simply had enough of Spokane and decided to skip town. Then, Mandic turned on the polygraph machine and asked him the first three questions, the ones that Frank Jr. knew were coming. Do you know what happened to your parents? Do you know where your parents can be found? Did you cause the disappearance of your parents? Frank Jr.'s answer to all three questions was no. Moving on to the other questions, Magic asked Frank Jr. if he knew if his parents were in the following states. Idaho, Hawaii, Washington and California, asking each question a number of times. Again, Frank Jr. answered no to each. The polygraph showed, however, that Frank Jr. had a consistent reaction to one of the states. It showed that he believed that Frank and Tessie were in fact still in Washington. Noting this, Mandic then narrowed down his questioning by asking if Frank Jr. knew if his parents were in a series of counties within Washington. Realising what was happening, Frank Jr. refused to continue with that part of the test. So Mandic changed tack, asking instead, Do you know whether your parents were poisoned? Do you know whether your parents were shot? Again, Frank Jr. refused to continue, insisting that Mandic only ask him questions from his own list. They took a break and Mandic took a look at the results of the initial three questions of the test. Do you know what happened to your parents? Do you know where your parents can be found? And did you cause the disappearance of your parents? Frank Jr. had answered no to all three, but the test results indicated that he wasn't telling the truth. Mandic went back into the examination room and told Frank Jr. the results. Frank Jr. insisted on being asked only the questions on his list, and when Mandic said that he wouldn't do so until they'd finished his own questions, Frank Jr. said that the test was over. In response to the results, Frank Jr. said that he'd failed because he was feeling frightened and nervous. He said he thought that the test was designed to set him up, and that Mandic was working with the police who were watching the test through a one-way mirror. Mandic denied the accusations and said that contrary to what Frank Jr. claimed, he had seemed relatively calm when the test was taking place. Even if he was afraid and nervous, he said, so were most people who took polygraph tests, and good examiners should always take that into account. In conclusion, Mandic said, It is my personal opinion that we can conclude either he himself did something to his parents, that he had someone else do it, or at least that he has definite knowledge of what was done and by whom. There was nothing ambiguous or inconclusive about this test. Mr. Posar was clearly not telling the truth. In autumn of 1986, after almost a year behind bars, Frank Jr.'s appeal against his conviction for theft and forgery was denied. His basis for the appeal was that prejudicial and unrelated testimony connected to his parents' disappearance had been allowed in court. Just a month before, he had also had a defamation case dismissed, which he had brought against the Spokesman Review, the Spokane Chronicle and the Spokane Police Department for an article that had been published suggesting that he had murdered his parents. Strangely, Frank Jr. then refused to cooperate during the taking of depositions, not answering any questions aside from his name, age and background, and refusing to even appear at one of his scheduled appointments. 
According to the judge, Frank Jr. invoked the Fifth Amendment, protecting him against self-incrimination in regards to any questions to do with his parents' disappearance. Not content with suing two newspapers and the police department, Frank Jr. also brought a legal malpractice suit against the public defender's office, who had represented him at court. However, this too was dismissed after he failed to produce any documents that backed up his claim. Following an early release from prison, Frank Jr. showed up at the Spokane Street Motel in January of 1987. His sister Linda had taken her over and told him that he could stay there for a couple of days. Instead, he stayed for a year and a half. During that time, Frank Jr. paid no rent to his sister and in May of 1988, Linda took action against him on behalf of their parents' estate. The heating bills were running more than the motel's income, she said, and besides, she couldn't support her brother forever. Frank Jr. was ordered to pay $3,060 to cover his stay at the Spokane Street Motel. In the years that followed, Linda and Frank Jr. lost touch, with Frank Jr. doing several more stints in prison. He used to send me crazy letters, said Linda. Eventually, I just quit responding. Neither she nor the police know of Frank Jr.'s whereabouts today, and somewhere out there, now in his 60s, he's still a prime suspect for murder. Linda continued to run the Spokane Street Motel, which now serves as a haunting reminder of the couple who vanished from its rooms almost 35 years ago. Their lives cruelly stolen, and their dreams with them too. Thank you for listening to episode 19 of the Case Remains podcast. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle Case Remains, or you can head over to the website www.caseremains.com where you'll find write-ups on missing persons cases and unsolved mysteries. Until next time, stay safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.